Welcome to season two of An Unexpected Launch, a podcast sharing stories of people thriving after an unexpected circumstance. I'm continually amazed by the stories of those who don't give up, who use a challenging life event to propel themselves forward, those who find unexpected gifts of beauty and grace along their journey, and who use those gifts to change the world around them. After fleeing communist Romania, Daniela spent much of her young life living in immigrant asylums in Germany and Portugal. Bullied by classmates during the day, living in fear at night, Daniela was forced to grow up quickly. Her family immigrated to the United States where she excelled in school, yet Daniela also excelled at addiction. Waking up on the floor of a jail cell was a pivotal moment. Daniela was faced with a choice die or get clean. She sought recovery and went on to become founder and CEO of WeConnect Health, a Seattle-based startup using research-based technology to support those recovering from addiction. Daniela recently delivered a TEDx talk on the importance of intimacy in the workplace that I encourage you all to listen to. Daniela, welcome to an unexpected launch. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. I am as well. Daniela, when you were five years old, your father left your home in Romania on foot seeking political asylum in Germany. What do you remember about his leaving? Yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, I was only five years old, but because I was an only child, my parents, you know, were very always open and transparent about our situation. I don't remember him so much leaving um, as much as I, of course, remember getting there with my mom many months later. Um, I remember that it was just an odd time during that time. I was a really social um, kid when I was young, and I would sometimes actually go in our neighborhood and have chats with our neighbors and things like that um, because I really craved, you know, human connection even as a little kid. And I remember my mom saying, like, please don't go do that again, like, if you, you know, because they were worried that if anybody in the current governmental climate was to find out about our plans to leave or anything like that, that they could get in trouble. So I think that's sort of what I remember about that time the most uh, versus my dad actually leaving uh, for that short period of time before we were able to join him again. Hmm. And, and I think it was a couple of months later that you and your mom were able to board a train and you headed to Germany, but unfortunately you weren't able to live with your dad when you arrived. Can you share with us your experiences while living in Germany? Yeah, absolutely. So at first we were not able, we were not able to do that because my mom and I had arrived at a, in a different time frame. Um, Germany was trying to keep all of the immigrants very organized at that time. And so we were actually bound uh, to stay in a different immigrant asylum, and we weren't supposed to leave a certain geographic area. And so at times we had to sneak around to go see my dad um, or vice versa. My parents actually are engineers by degree. Um, they're really amazing. And But during that time, immigrants, especially from Romania, were looked at quite differently. And so my parents worked really hard, um, multiple service jobs. Um, and on top of that, we had to navigate seeing each other without getting caught because if we did, they would renege our temporary visas and we would have to get sent back again. So you you were really young. You're, you were five years old. So were you afraid 
Or did you, did you have any appreciation of the danger that you were in? I would say it's maybe neither of those. I think at the time, you know, this was my normal. Um, I didn't know that there were alternative situations that you could really be in. I think I definitely, when I look back in my life, I see how, like, stress and pressure and fear in good ways and in not-so-good ways, um, having those been imprinted at such an early age, have affected me in different ways. Um, but I think at the time, you know, I actually, I think at the time, even being that young, what I worried about was to not worry my parents because I did see the stress. I did see how things were affecting them and sort of the situation we were in. I don't think I was able to grasp it, um, to the full extent, but it led to certain behaviors that I had where I just didn't want to stress them out more and I didn't communicate my feelings from a very early age, um, which has led to some things later on in my life. I think it's pretty incredible. So many individuals that I've, I've talked with, the, the lengths that children go to protect their parents, it's really quite, quite amazing. And, and I think about you being five years old and feeling that, that need to protect both of your parents. And, and like you say, that caused you to stuff some of your feelings down so ultimately, Germany denies you citizenship, and so you leave for Portugal. Can you tell us what it was like to live in the immigrant asylum in Portugal? Absolutely, yeah. So basically, we were in Germany. My mom ended up getting this job working for a really successful family, uh, doing cooking and cleaning and like basically being their personal assistant. And they continue to renew our, our temporary visas, but at one point the government government said, you know, we'll not be able to give you guys citizenship at any point. And so my dad, again, being entrepreneurial and really motivated and um, person that he is, he's like, well, if my daughter's never going to have citizenship here, we need to find an alternative, but going back to Romania is definitely not it. So we packed all of our bags in a car um, with a German license plate, um, and we the plan was to drive just as far west as we could, and we would just ask for political silence, asylum and backtrack in every single country and give it, our, give it our all. We ended up driving all the way through to Portugal without getting uh, checked in a way that, you know, would have uh, sort of stopped things from, uh, from us um, being able to go farther to a different country. We ended up in Portugal. We were in that immigrant asylum for a little bit of time, and... It was definitely a really, that was a very volatile environment. Um, it was not, I would say, very safe in that particular immigrant asylum. Um, I could always hear sounds and sort of crime happening outside. Um, and just the living quarters were not very comfortable. Uh, but we were very blessed because very shortly after, we were able to move to northern Portugal to this small fishing town. And that was probably one of my favorite experiences as a kid. Hmm. So while you were living in the immigrant asylum and you were experiencing all of these situations that you probably didn't want to tell your parents about, did you have anybody to share your feelings with? Um, no, and I mean, really what that led to is actually a positive, not the not sharing feelings part. And I'm sure we'll get into you know vulnerability and recovery and those types of topics a little bit later on, but um 
I really just dove into books and reading and academics, and I love to read. And I also just developed a great love for for animals. Um, You know, I'm a big animal lover, and I've had uh, some sort of pet my entire life. And that's sort of what I just um, was my escape. Um, You know, uh, it was reading, it was getting into books, it was learning about the world on my own. Uh, is really how I coped with everything. As you know, there are many children who are coming into the United States from Mexico, and they're being separated from their parents and, and the rest of their family. Based on your experience as a child navigating the immigration asylums, what do you think these children are experiencing? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for them and take away their voice. I think that wouldn't be fair. But I can tell from my experience and now having grown through and persevered is that what I didn't know that I was experiencing at the time was a tremendous amount of trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, that trauma, if it's not treated through the help of a variety of tools, it can uh, be very debilitating to being really uh, reaching your potential Um, reaching freedom and and not being in pain um, and not being able to experience life to the fullest. So the thing that I really believe, um, that's actually a big area of passion of mine, is that my hope is that um, I can set aside time and others will set aside time to create programs and resources and the ability to help those children um, get tools that they need to be able to succeed in life because I think those situations build an incredible amount of resilience and adaptability, but that needs to be coupled with resources and trauma treatment because for me, that was a very traumatic experience um, and that ended up coming out sideways as an adult uh, through substance use disorder and all those types of things. And so uh, to me, it makes me really sad hearing about the situations and how we're treating those families. And I think it's uh, it's really really, really sad and a huge detriment to to those families in our society Mm and completely unacceptable. Yeah, thank you for sharing that that perspective. I really appreciate that. So you you end up moving to the United States and you settled in a small town outside of Seattle, Washington. What would you say was most difficult about moving to the United States as a young girl? Yeah, I mean, this was so. This was our fourth, the fourth country that I lived in. The third time that I moved somewhere where I didn't know the language um, or the culture, and I would say the hardest part is, you know, just seeing the difference in how people treat you. Uh, once I learned English perfectly, and I lost my accent for the third time, um, you know, the behaviors of people were different. Um, I got treated normally, interactions were fine. I still experienced some bullying uh, before I learned English. Um, And just being in English as a second language class where people felt felt like I was being treated differently. And to me, that's only gotten me to be stronger in my conviction uh, to fight for people that are underrepresented because at the end of the day, I was the same person. All that changed is that I spoke English a little bit better, and I didn't have an accent. And I just find that, you know, that that's become a blessing, too, because it's become basically my life's mission is to create experiences and products and services that help people rather than to connect, rather than disconnect, um, and really empower people to reach their potential. And uh, 
but that's what my experience was, and that's what it's led me to believe. And based on, on your experiences, do you think that there are things that communities could do to ease transition for families who are immigrating into the U.S.? That's a really interesting question. I think parents and family structures could potentially be, I don't like using the word mandated, but I think if families could get more education around having cultural sensitivity, learning the positives of a diverse environment and things like that, then they would never pass that on to their kids. Because I don't believe that kids wake up one day and they're just like, I think that someone from a different place I should go bully or talk down to. I think what it does is that there's generational trauma and belief systems that get driven down by parents. And so I think that if we could create some sort of program um, that can help people acclimate uh, folks to different cultures. Now that's like the really sort of middle of the road solution. I think there also needs to be another solution, which isn't even just as much as about immigrants, but um, in terms of the systemic racism that's still going on in this country, I think we need to have a complete overhaul and really put uh, those people that have been underserved in positions of power and completely change the way that we've uh, built our system because discrimination isn't just for immigrants, it's also for people of different ethnic backgrounds in this country to this day. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And in some of the conversations that I've had with other individuals, I think that there's there's so much fear about differences in in our culture and differences between people and that fear and that lack of having a conversation and looking at people with an open mind and an open heart drives this this lack of connection and I, I would love to see us be able to have more open-hearted conversations and, and really see people for, for who they are and not for who we fear that they are. Yeah, and you know, um, it's going to be funny that I'm quoting this person, but Lady Gaga, she said something like really powerful one time, and she said the threat of evil is not, you know, political beliefs like guns or no guns, conservative, liberal, or whatever. She said the threat of evil is thinking that we are actually different from one another and it causes divisiveness. She said something like that. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't agree more. I think that um, people just, I think people at their core, every single person wants connection, wants love, and wants to feel a sense of purpose. And then what happens is we get layered on by our parents' belief systems, community's belief systems, fear from the media, whatever that looks like. And then we create these armors with the perception that, well, that other person's different than me, so they can't possibly want the same thing that I want. And then it creates this uh, separation and a lack of listening to each other. And then you throw on top of that severe trauma that really, like, closes people up even more and then other people perceive them as being cold or mean or uh, indisposed and again it just creates divisiveness mm -hmm. yeah I, I, I completely agree with you so you you talked about the bullying and, 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 and feeling different and not a part of your community and, and so as a defense mechanism you pushed yourself to perfection to excelling and while that was beneficial in terms of excelling scholastically, 
You also excelled at addiction. Can you tell us how that started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I always talk about this. So addiction or substance use disorder, um, as we call it in, in, in the field, is a biopsychosocial chronic condition. And um, the environment part of it is like trauma kindles the fire of substance use disorder. But then aside from that, there it's, a, it's an actual medical chronic condition that you develop over time or some people, you know, just different points in their life. It just depends on how it manifests. And so for me, even before I picked up a drink or drug, like you had mentioned, I was over-exercising, I was overachieving in school, because basically looking inward and being still was too painful. I didn't know that at the time, but what it was is I was grasping for the outside to make me feel whole. And when I went to college, I thought that changing my environment would give me a sense of joy or freedom that I was, like, seeking or connection. And I entered into a sorority, and um, that's where I really found alcohol and then I had something really traumatic happen again, which was my boyfriend, uh, 19 years old. He actually overdosed and passed away from an uh, opioid and uh, beer. Um, and that was really traumatic. But given that I have substance use disorder, uh, instead of shying away from those substances, it was actually, it, it gave me a, an excuse or a reason to dive into that more because I was not treating the trauma. I refused grief counseling. And so... That's how it really got it started getting exacerbated, but at the same time, I was still also an overachiever, and so the two were intention, but fun- somewhat functional for really about a decade, um, and that went on for for a decade until finally I hit a turning point. So here you are, you're balancing this addiction with college at um, University of Washington, and you ultimately go on to found a company called Soundstokes. How do you think that you were able to maintain this addiction with this high achievement, both in college and then founding a company? I don't think that's really unique in any way. Uh, substance use disorder manifests and progresses differently for a number of people. For some people, it's functional uh, or it's mild, I should say, if I'm speaking in clinical terms, for a long time. For some people, it's functional, and then all of a sudden it hits a really severe cliff. And then for some folks, it manifests severely from day one. And so I think I had a sort of built-in resilience in how I grew up that was combating it getting so severe for a while. But then finally, the you know, the camel's back broke, and um, when uh, my now my best friend, she's my best friend now, but when True and I founded that company, I was still on somewhat functional side, Um, and then when we went through that journey for about a year and a half, that's finally when it started progressing so severely at such a tragic slope that um, it really wasn't manageable anymore, and then I couldn't uh, also maintain a company or get the next job, or which I had done for the previous decade. So, as you mentioned, you have have a pivotal moment, and you you talk about this in your TEDx talk, but you wake up on the floor of a jail cell. So, can you tell us what led up to that point? Yeah, so my co-founder for Soundstrokes Art, um, who's my best friend today, as I mentioned, 
she sat me down in the most unconditional loving way to tell me that there was something going on in terms of drinking and, and using substances. And I was able to hear her. I mean, several people had tried to tell me about my problem before or about having this condition, but I wasn't able to listen. But when she approached me with such love and doing it out of care, I was able to hear her. And that was the first time I genuinely felt unconditional love from another human being. I mean, it's really powerful. While I was able to hear her, I still didn't know what substance use disorder was. I didn't know what resources were available to me. And because of how I grew up, being at the same time hyper-motivated, wanted to make my parents proud for the sacrifices that they made to get me here, I tried to stop on my own, which it does not work. Without community, without resources, uh, it is nearly impossible to get into active recovery. Um, and now there's so many pathways to recovery, which is really incredible. But I moved back to Seattle. I took back my first job, and I tried to stop on my own. So I'd be able to put together like one or two days maybe. Um, but sure enough, the next binge after that would be significantly worse because at this time I was on a very steep slope. And I finally got a DUI. Um, I blew a .29 after being at the police station for three hours. And I got a breathalyzer in my car, thought that would help me fix it, and it didn't. I blew a .22 like two nights later. And then finally I got arrested because I missed my arraignment. Um, and I got uh, arrested because I lost my wallet and couldn't pay a taxi cab. So they called the police, and the police saw that I missed my arraignment for my DUI, arrested me. Um, for those of you that live in Washington, the Kirkland jail was under renovation. And so um, they took me down to Burien uh, Square, uh, the correctional facility. And I just remember sitting there on the cold floor of the jail cell and thinking, I can't live this way, but I also don't know how to live differently. And every cell in my body was just shaking. And... My father bailed me out. I was just feeling really sad and disappointed because the last thing I wanted to do was disappoint my parents. And I looked at them and I said, I think I need to go to this thing called rehab, which, by the way, I'd only seen in the news Lindsay Lohan going to rehab. I didn't have no idea what treatment was, um, which is the, really the correct term. Um, and so I locked myself in my parents' house for three days and searched for treatment centers uh, to get a bed, and it took me three days to go to my intake. I was so lucky because when they did my intake, that counselor actually told me, if I don't put down here that you're intoxicated on this sheet of paper, uh, insurance might not reimburse you or might not cover you for inpatient treatment. And I looked at them and I said, if I don't go to inpatient treatment and you recommend that I do outpatient, I'm not going to live. Like, I have to go into a structured inpatient program. And so he did that for me. And then the other big blessing is that my employer at the time kept me on insurance so that I could go. And that was another incredible blessing and a privilege that a lot of Americans don't have today uh, that are suffering from this. It's really expensive. Still had a copay that my parents covered. Uh, but that was really the big turning point is that I made this choice to surrender and saw this as a last resort. And it turned out to actually be the best option that I could have gone for well, and I think your your point is well taken that it there these resources aren't available to everybody, and I think that's something that we often forget. And I think particularly when you look at 
Seattle and the homeless population that we have, much of it driven by addiction and individuals who may not have access to the care that you were, as you say, privileged enough to have. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very true. While you were in recovery, you created the the We Connect you created We Connect Health, and that was an app to support those recovering from addiction. You ended up becoming a finalist for the Social Venture Partners Fast Pitch. Can you tell us about that outcome? Sure. Um, So just to back up a little bit, kind of how the We Connect Health platform came about. um, That was, wow, we've been been going for five years. I have to remember that sometime. Um, So when I went through that four-week inpatient program, I learned that the relapse rate was enormously high, that 80% of people relapsed within their first year, if not the first 60 days of recovery. And I thought that that was um, just unacceptable. Um, And then on my last day, they gave me a sheet of paper that said, do all of these things uh, that, you know, if you do these daily and weekly, you will stay in long-term recovery. It included going to community support meetings, 12-step meetings, uh, therapy, outpatient, changing the way that I ate and exercise. And just an exorbitant amount of activities, and I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, you know, getting a piece of paper and walking back to your old environment at 28 days of being in recovery, where this is a lifelong chronic condition that you have to manage daily, just like diabetics have to take their insulin. So I thought that there's got to be a better way to make people feel connected to humans, keep them accountable to that care plan and positively rewarding them for doing so. And so I came up with the idea of building a mobile app around it um, and then also empowering care teams to have visibility into those activities so they can intervene, which is done through our data dashboard tool. So that's the initial vision for it, and it's grown into something much bigger today. But um, I knew that I had to practice my pitch uh, before we got into a... in front of an audience of investors that could support such a big undertaking and such a big vision. And so um, I pitched at a number of different competitions. SVB was one, SVP was one of them. Um, we ended up not much later after that going on to TechCrunch as well and a number of others since. But it was a great experience in terms of practicing the pitch um, and being able to get in front of audiences and, and being able to get comfortable with sharing my story and the vision that we had for this. Um, and shortly thereafter, we went and pitched to our first big angel investor and got our seed investment. Well, congratulations. That, that is fantastic. And you've now successfully raised millions for We Connect Health. Can you tell us what it's like, the journey from from going from that initial recovery to becoming CEO of this company? Sure. Um, I mean, it's a, everyone that's an entrepreneur knows that there's ups and downs and pivots and um, just an incredible journey. I think the most important thing for me is that we've been really fortunate to be surrounded by got an incredible team, an incredible co-founder. Um, our board and our investors are extremely supportive and savvy and very experienced. And so I think it's really, the journey has really just been to continue to be open-minded, 
uh, have a good work ethic and adaptable, being really adaptable and holding the vision and the values that we have so it keeps the team really strong at developing what they have. And so today we've gone from, you know, creating this, this platform uh, that at the time had never been created before. Now it's an emerging market and there's a couple other, a few other players in it to now working with uh, incredible amounts of um, health plans, health insurance plans, managed care organizations, uh, providers that leverage our platform for their patient populations to be able to sustain recovery. And I think the most special thing about that journey is daily in our Slack channel seeing surveys of feedback from people using this platform and saying how it's changed their life how they're able to stay accountable to their recovery, how the incentives and rewards they're getting in the app through Amazon gift cards they can use for food and household items. And right now, especially in this crisis with the coronavirus, this has become an even more vital tool as social distancing and isolation is the biggest enemy that somebody could have in recovery. And so a digital therapeutic like this and telehealth and solutions like of in this category are um, now really starting to shine because they're the support system that people have to feeling connected to other people and staying accountable to what they need to do um, to thrive in their recovery. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, something that's been so important as we think about individuals who rely on that community. So is there anything different that's that you're doing through We Connect Health or is it just simply that this platform that you have existing has that community already in place from a virtual perspective? So we did. Actually, two weeks ago, I thought, oh my gosh, all the community support meetings are canceled. Um, You know, people are being mandated to stay in place, which is the right thing to do, by the way, um, in terms of the COVID crisis that we're experiencing. Um, but what we did is, you know, I thought we have the, our certified peer recovery support specialists, which are like social workers, but with lived recovery experience that work with um, the uh, folks that are using the application to get them resources on top of the app, keeping them accountable to their recovery plans. So I thought we have these resources in place, in-person meetings and therapy sessions, and those things are canceled. So we stood up virtual support meetings two weeks ago. And we've had 20,000 folks join from 10 different countries. Um, We've gotten an enormous amount of press around it. And now we're able to take this solution to the insurance companies, the health plans, and the managed care organizations to market this solution to their population because now it's going to do a couple different things. As people are isolated in their homes, um, they have access to support virtually. So they're not just left alone in their homes. And then if they need that extra level of, of um, support and they get on our application and start working with our peer coaches virtually through video and through the application, they can get guidance on resources that they might need and they can continue to get guidance on self-care routines that they can engage in and engagement in these digital uh, virtual meetings can keep them accountable to getting support that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. On top of that, they're able to earn Amazon gift cards by staying accountable to those activities. So especially for those folks that have been recently laid off, they'll have an extra piece of income to be able to leverage that for food, household items, 
medical supplies. So it's something that we implemented very quickly um, and it's still available and it's going to continue to be available for free for anyone to join. And then for plans and providers, they can leverage the solution branded for their membership um, to give them something that isn't going to exacerbate this epidemic of addiction during the pandemic. Well, congratulations on, on coming up with a solution in such a short period of time that fit, fulfilled such an important need. Thank you. Danielle, what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of your journey? The most challenging? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think the challenges for anybody in this industry is that we're making great headway in this, I'll be the first to say, but people are not equating physical health to mental health yet. It's like it is the same thing. Um, Physical health is just as important as mental health, and I think changing the tide on that stigma um, has been part of our work when typically with products or things you put out in the market, you're not also battling stigma around it. Mm. Um, and so I would say that's been challenging, but also I hope that with, you know, us, all of us that are in this industry continuing to sharing our stories and showing the data that shows that products like these are effective and making a positive impact on the people that are leveraging them is changing that time, but I would say that's probably been the most challenging thing. Um, you know, like people, if you break your leg, nobody blames you or shamed you for it. You go to the doctor and you get a cast on your foot and you get treated and people are empathetic and compassionate. And with addiction, with recovery in particular, if you have a reoccurrence event, uh, which people commonly address as relapse, but if you have a reoccurrence event, for some people, you know, they not only do they feel internal guilt and shame, but they might get that from their community. And I think that's completely um, unacceptable and unfair. You know, this is a chronic condition, uh, just like diabetes or having cancer. And so I think changing the tide on that is probably the, has been the most challenging, but also the most rewarding because we see the tide changing on that. Well, and I think that the tide begins to change when people start telling their stories and many people don't tell their story because as you you allude to there can be shame involved and I think the more that we can talk and share and remove the shame and remove the stigma the better that it is for everybody and the the more individuals feel um, you know because shame is very isolating and you feel that you're the only one and if we can be talking about um, what's happening and know that we're not alone and we know that we're not the only one, that's incredibly empowering. Yep. Yep. I completely agree. Well, thank you for creating a platform that allows these stories to be told. Well, and I'm so appreciative of you sharing because it, it, it is, it's, it's a starting point for conversation. And, and my goal is if one person can connect and see themselves in somebody else's story and know that, Yes, the journey is difficult, but you can move forward and you can find something incredible and beautiful along that journey and, and on the other side. So, Daniela, what would you say to somebody who's very early on in their recovery process from, from addiction? I would just say, you know, be, be open 
to asking for help. Like my greatest strength is that I'm able to ask for help and support. And I think that is people's greatest strength is to be able to be vulnerable, to ask for help when they need it, um, and be gentle with yourself. Be gentle, but also very programmatic about taking the actions that are being suggested. And sometimes that's really hard. But when it gets hard, ask for help. Um, and that's really what I would share with people. And I think I don't think that ever goes away. I think even people without substance use disorder, um, you know, the more you can open up, the more you can be vulnerable, the more you can share what your feelings are and, and honoring those. That could be people's greatest strength to success, to thriving, to finding joy, to and also maybe facing the reality of what changes they need to make in their life. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree uh, with you more. So, as as you know, re- recovery is a is a challenging process. What resources did you turn to for support during that time? Oh gosh, I mean, I still use my resources today. Like I said, this is a lifelong journey. So, EMDR therapy has been super powerful. Um, community support meetings, meditation, yoga, um, working out. Uh, journaling. I mean, the list just goes on. Um, I did all of those at the beginning. I still leverage those today. Um, they may look differently than they did in the first couple of years, but two things that I did do uh, early on, which I no longer um, do today, is I went to outpatient about nine hours a week for the first year, and then I also went into a sober living home or a recovery home for about six months, and then there I was surrounded with other people early in recovery and that was very structured and very powerful um, experience that really helped me a lot. Um, but the other tools I listed, I still leverage to this day and continue to. What What did you look to for inspiration and hope? That's an interesting question. I don't think I had inspiration and hope early in recovery. I think it was more desperation was my best friend. I didn't have a way out, so I I couldn't really choose anything but to listen to the other people that had gone before me um, or to the suggestions that were being made by others. So I would say that at the beginning, there wasn't really hope. It was more like, I don't have any other choice but to try all of these things because I don't see any other way out. So So what, what would you say are the gifts that have come through your experiences? Um, I mean, you have such a rich life experience. What are some of the gifts that have come through that? Gosh, I think my entire life is a gift right now. (laughs) Um, The the relationships that I have, I'm in a very healthy, fulfilling, thriving, romantic relationship. I have strong friendships. Um, I've got an incredible business that's able to do well and do good. Um, which is a really special experience. I'm able to, you know, work on what I feel passionate about on a daily basis. I have other passions that I've been able to um, help come to fruition as a result of being in recovery. You know, I'd say my entire life is, is a gift at this point that I don't take for granted. And what's your greatest hope? My greatest hope is that Eventually, we can use tools like WeConnect, um, and we can we can have tools like that that people can really customize to 
whatever it is that they're trying to reach their full potential. My greatest hope is that people learn how to actually look inward at what's wounded them through childhood and work through those, that I believe everybody can use beneficially therapy. And my greatest hope is that everybody would try that because it's really an unbiased source that can listen to you and be a human connection. Uh, that's super powerful. And so my greatest hope is that people realize that being vulnerable and looking inward and healing the sort of belief systems and programmatic things that have been imprinted on them, that if they can work through those and transform those, that people could reach their peak uh, potential and, and joy in life. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times vulnerability and being vulnerable can be incredibly scary for a lot of individuals. You're really opening yourself up. And I think it's pretty incredible what comes from vulnerability. And it it takes that first couple of times to open your mouth to either ask for the help or share your story. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And the world around you just becomes that much richer because the more you're vulnerable, the more others feel that safety to be vulnerable with you. And that's where, as you've talked about, human connection is so important. And it really, we can't have that deep, meaningful, real connection without being vulnerable with each other. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I completely agree with what what your thoughts are there. I mean, it's such a, it is scary at first. And I think there's a difference in oversharing and being vulnerable too, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think navigating that path and doing that with people that are safe relationships in your life and practicing it can be, become your most powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Danielle, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like our listeners to know? Not that I can think of. I'm again. I just thank you for providing a platform like this. I think um, I think it's super powerful, and, and I really commend you for that. Well, thank you. I'm so appreciative. I wouldn't be able to do this without individuals like yourselves being open to speaking with me, sharing some of the most challenging moments, um, and yet the greatest gifts with me. So I'm so appreciative. And I just want to congratulate you on what We Connect Health is doing. It's incredible. And you being able to provide somewhat an instantaneous solution during this health crisis is absolutely incredible. So I wanted to thank you and your team for all of the hard work that's going into this. And I know that you've been working, you've been working day and night. So thank you also for squeezing time in for our conversation today. Well, thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music.